Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. This is going to be a fun topic. And I can say that yeah. because we're all money nerds in here. And so we like weird stuff that other people would be like, what? Why are you talking about this? So maybe let's start off with why is it important to maybe have a good emergency fund that's besides a savings account? Why not just a savings account? So I'm going to preface all of this with a lot of this is going to get contradicted later. <laughs> But I not like broadly contradicted, just contradicted in specific situations. Okay. But the fundamental reason why, and I think most financial coaches are probably either aware of it at some subconscious level, if not aware of it at a conscious level. But when you have an emergency fund that is just sitting in a savings account, uh, it's very easy to rate it. and. It's oftentimes best to create some levels of mechanisms that allow for people to make it a little harder to raid the emergency fund unless the emergency has actually happened. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had, well, people who have come to me in prospect meetings or even clients who you know, in the beginning stages will be like, well, I moved a lot of money over to savings, which is great. And I subsequently pulled it out of savings because, you know, I overspent, which is not great or just because they wanted it. So, yes. And so with that idea, that actually becomes the more important component, the emergency fund and where to put it. A lot of people focus a lot on, oh, my God, I need to get a return out of my emergency fund. No, you do not. That is not the purpose of an emergency fund. I see you YouTubers and bloggers and fellow FinCon friends. Yeah. And one of the fundamental problems is that when you have an emergency fund, if you're trying to get return out of it, you actually break the emergency fund like by definition. So any type of investment, and we're going to define for the purposes of this particular conversation an investment as sticking money somewhere. So putting money in a shoebox and put bearing in your backyard, we're going to call that an investment. <laughs> All right. May not be the best retirement approach, but yeah. you know, it is an investment for the context of this conversation. Yeah. It's not actually an investment, but we're going to use the term investment very, very loosely right now. Cool. So uh, can I give investment advice of telling people to shove money in a shoebox? Maybe we'll tackle that on another. Well, I'm a registered investment advisor, so I can't. So it doesn't matter. You're right. I can't do Jack, but you can. Actually, I can't. I wouldn't be able to do it over the phone. I'd need to have a contract. The SEC would get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Oh, anyway, right. but I digress. So loosely defining investment, there are four characteristics of any, and it's really any financial medium, right? But investment is what we're going to loosely call it. it four characteristics. 
these four characteristics are, you can kind of think of, of them along continuums. And as you increase the positive of one of the characteristics, you have to increase the negative of one of the other, one or more of the other ones. Right? Yeah. There's no way to draw the slider positive without increasing the negatives of one of the other ones, any of the sliders. And this is true not only conceptually, but it's also true mathematically based on how things are calculated. Okay. All of that being said, okay. the four characteristics are risk, liquidity, and marketability. Two different things. We'll call them generically liquidity right now, income, and growth. Risk is pretty obvious. How much does the thing go up and down? What's the downside potential? Blah, blah, blah. Liquidity and marketability combined, the generic version of liquidity is how quickly can you get access to it? Mm -hmm. Income, does it generate money while you own that asset? And then finally, a growth, does the actual value of the asset go up? Okay, so in our shoebox example, just curious how you would define each of those for our shoebox really quickly. Give you 30 okay. seconds. Shoebox, the only risk that's there is you forget where the shoebox is. Good point. Right? I mean, there's theft risk and other things along those lines. Liquidity, provided that you don't bury it in cement, it's pretty quick to get access to it. Fair enough. Right? Income zero, right. growth zero. Cool. Right. Okay, so the, there's, there's that. A savings account, very highly liquid, right? Very easy to get access to it. Almost no risk, right? However, very low income and no growth. So how is income then different than growth? Growth is the value of the asset. Income is the money that is generated while you own the asset. Cool. Growth is the money that is generated at the point of selling the asset. Good. Thank you. So the rent from a rental property is your income. The appreciation the value of the property is the growth. Perfect. Good clarification to ask for. <laughs> yeah. And so when you try and increase your income or your growth, which is your return, those two things combined is your return, yeah. you have to, by definition, also increase the risk. So slide the risk thing negative or make it harder to get to the money. There, okay. There's no other way around it, right? That, that's You have to do that. Okay. And one of the key characteristics of an emergency fund is when is your cancer diagnosis going to come in that's going to require you to dip into your emergency fund? Well, this just got really <laughs> macabre. I don't know. And hopefully never. Never, uh, right? Hopefully never. But that's the point, right? Hopefully, the answer is never. And if it does come, we have no idea. That's the whole point of it. And so the idea that we lock up the growth or increase the risk, both of those could cause significant or will cause significant problems if a surprise happens. Emergency funds, you really shouldn't be looking at trying to increase their the revenue, right? Increase the 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 profitability, the return on it, right? Either through income or, or through growth. It's tempting. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. It's tempting. 
I mean, I get oh, that absolutely. you have lots of money there, you know, for a down payment on a house or, you know, if you're having a relatively, well, I guess even inexpensive wedding of like 10 to 20 grand, you're like, depending on where you're at, you're like, wow, that's something that I would love to get a return on. And right. But you just said two things that are neither emergency funds. Right. So those are savings goals. Yes. In my world, emergency funds are for things that are unknown Mm. and unknowable. Perfect. Yeah. I forgot. Sorry. Emergency fund, not just savings goals. Yeah. Pretend I did not exist. But it is important because there are a lot of people that do conflate those two. Right. Right. One of the things that I don't include is your car breaking down. My clients, their car breaking down is not part of their emergency fund. Right. Because I pretty am pretty confident that cars don't last forever. It's something you can yes. plan for and put a line item in. Yep. And there's pretty good data to say if you have this car, your average cost of maintenance and repairs over five years is going to be this. Yes, you don't know when your tires are going to need to be replaced. You don't know whether that's going to be in June, July, or August. But you do know that tires last approximately two years, that the tires cost $400 to replace all four of them on the car. So that is $200 per year that needs to be saved for tires. Correct. So that's not an emergency. That's a lack of planning. Yep. And then there... We could, yeah, if you're looking at buying a house in four years, absolutely. That can be invested with a four year time frame with right. a financial advisor, not financial coach. Don't put yourself into that position. Good discussion in the financial coaches community this past week. Uh, oh, yeah. Huge, you know, July huge. 14th, 2021, in case you're interested. Yep. But those are things that, that where you can say, okay, let's try and increase the return because we can change the risk and the liquidity sliders. So, Right. Assuming that the timeframe of the client doesn't change. So potentially, right. right. So there's all the human aspects to take into account. Whereas absolutely, we thought it was going to be this amount of time. Now it's changed. What do we do? Yeah. Yeah. But that's just plan versus planning. Good point. So, so all of that being said, Good little detour, but I think it was important. Yeah. So thanks for that clarification. Now let's talk about what, what some other options are. And I'm going to throw out some of the more obvious ones. I'm going to throw out some of the less obvious ones. And then we'll talk about ones that are fully and wholly don't do this if you're a financial coach. <laughs> Was this like Dogecoin, what we were talking about before? Yeah, Dogecoin is the huge one. Uh, Any black poker chip from an off-strip casino in Vegas works really well. Okay. Um, Check, check. Thank (laughs) thank goodness you're the one giving this advice because I'm not like Right. That was all a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I love every time after this, it's like, disclaimer. Yes, yes. uh, Yeah, this is not investment advice. All right. So let's talk about, but let's talk about some actual ones. And the real question is not where do we put the emergency fund money, but what is the emergency fund money for? Right. Okay. Because that is going to make the big determinant on what the, where we put the money. So let me give you two examples. Your 
medical insurance has a $3,000 deductible. So a portion, or sorry, $3,000 out of pocket, maximum okay. out of pocket in a year. So there's this pool of your emergency fund that is just in case you have a massive medical emergency and have to pay that full $3,000 in a single year, right? Because that's, that's pool number one. There's also a pool of your emergency fund that is for unemployment, right? You lose your job. In your case, all your clients fire you at once and you have no new clients coming in and you no longer have income. Those are two very different pools. Even if both of them are $3,000. Because if your monthly living expenses are $1,000 a month, and that is a three-month emergency fund, you need $1,000 in the first month after you, leave, you lose your job, $1,000 in the second month, and $1,000 in the third month. Mm -hmm. Whereas the medical bill will probably come all at once as soon as you get discharged from the hospital. <laughs> and as a result, that, that has a very different profile and should be looked at for a different thing. With regard to losing a job, if you have $3,000, $1,000 each month in your emergency fund for losing your job, well, you could get three three-month CDs, hmm. right, and ladder them it, so that the first CD becomes available in the first month, the second CD comes available in the second month, and the third CD comes available in the third month. And if you still have your job after the third month, you just roll the first one over. Interesting. Right? You're not going to make a huge amount of money out of it, but that perfectly aligns with what your needs are because the CDs will mature as you need the income from having lost your job. Got it. With the medical insurance, you can't put it into a three-month CD or a six-month CD or a nine-month CD because you may need it next month. Although I have seen that there are some CDs that are now like, they're almost exactly like savings funds and have the same rate of return because they're cancelable without penalty. I don't know. Some weird. Yeah, that has more to do with CD rates and savings rates in general are so low that they need something to entice people. I don't think that those are going to last for beyond this weird environment. Yeah, I was wondering because I don't remember having seen them years ago. Not that I'm that old, but or maybe they just prevalent. So there are all sorts of different CDs and they've been around for decades, add-on CDs, bump-up certificates, all sorts of different things, permutations. In every single case, it's you give up a little bit of return yeah. relative to the plain vanilla CD. The idea that you don't give up any return is probably because returns are so low right now. And I'm not, maybe there are other drawbacks within them that are not disclosed in the non-fine print part of the advertising, but are disclosed in the fine print. Cool. So, yeah. So that's, that's the first thing is really looking at how could this emergency fund money be needed? What is the circumstance and the timing of that need in order to look at different accounts? This uh, may be so, a quick research. Sorry, I keep taking you sidetracked. It's good. Is it possible to, would then the client have to, for example, let's just say it was a year out that they needed it, can they, like, would they have to open the CD 
one CD like one month, then the next CD the next month, and the next CD the third month? Or could they say, look, I buy all three of these at one point in time and then actually like have them mature or kind of purchase them in advance, kind of to schedule out so they can do it all at once versus over time? Just curious if you know. It's easiest to do it over time. There are some financial institutions that allow you to schedule out the purchase of a CD, but that just depends on their core system and whether or not that's systematic within it or their service level. Some of them, they'll have personal bank. If you have enough money to have a personal banker, then they'll do it for you, no problem. So yeah, that's that just depends on the financial institution and the, and the details. But yeah, it's possible. Cool. All right, so let's talk about the basic ones and then let's talk about the other elements. Uh, so the basic ones are obviously anything at a bank or credit union. So savings account, CDs, uh, you need to worry about the CDs with their liquidity and how quickly you can get money out of it without paying necessarily a penalty. Uh, the good news about CDs is the penalty that you pay is just your profit. It never dips into your original balance. Cool. So the penalty is the, the typical penalty is six months interest. So they'll go back and whatever interest you earned in the previous six months, they'll take from you. If you've only had the the CD open for three months, they'll just take three months worth of interest. So that's the first option. The second option is just a standard high yield savings account. One of the options that is one that is really obvious, but most people overlook is cash. Like literally having money in cash. And there is actually a big advantage to that. I tend to have a more than what people would probably expect. Not so much that people would go, holy crap, what's wrong with this guy? But they might. That's for other reasons. Josh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, level of cash in a safe in my house. And uh, the reason for that is really just dealing with random stuff that could happen, like preparedness type stuff, prepping type stuff. Right. So the apocalypse type thing. Um, that one, or, you know, the earth gets angry and shakes around a bunch. Uh, I know that could never happen in California, but. <laughs> and it's only been a hundred plus years since the last big shake. So I'm sure it's right. not about time or yeah, anything. Not a problem at all. But in an environment like that, while there are multiple redundancies on the banking systems and other things along those lines, well, we have water for that reason. We have food for that reason. So having cash set aside for that reason is also important, right? It's good, proper disaster preparedness that anyone that lives in tornado, hurricane, earthquake, fire, whatever zone should have. <laughs> she was like, how much cash do you have in your shoebox buried in your backyard? I was like, <laughs> Why do you think I was looking for that water pipe, G? Why do you think I was so happy about it? It all ties back into it now. And totally as an aside, I love it. <laughs> she, you know, was like, hey, y'all, I'm late to the party and totally off topic. Does Josh normally have a beard? Nice. All right. Time to focus. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, nah, he just waited till Thursday. I'm all over the place with it, actually. Yeah. I know. I hate trimming the beard, too. So sometimes it's a lot bigger sometimes. But Rashina wins the award for most observant today. Yes. Yes. So well done. Gold star. So cash is obviously a, a, an important consideration. And when I say cash, I don't mean cash in a savings account. I mean, like actually having cash scale, portional scale is always important. So, you know, if you or your client 
have $200 million sitting in uh, investment accounts, having a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash tightly packed in a safe in their house may not be, yeah, 200 million might not be a bad idea. If you've got $5,000 in your savings account, a couple hundred dollars in cash in a, in a safe or a lockbox might be more appropriate. <laughs> right. Scale is always important. So make sure that that's a part of this consideration as well. So those are the obvious ones. Now let's talk about the ones that are, you want to be careful about when you suggest this to clients that you also suggest that they talk with someone who is licensed because these can step on some legal boundaries. Okay. And we'll start with the one that will get most the most people upset. That's, it is your way. So let's do it. Let's jump right in with that one. Uh, whole life insurance, right? Yeah, exactly. Come right? People are coming to attack you, pitchforks. Cool. Whole life insurance is actually a real, and universal as well, is actually a really, really interesting tool. And if someone, so the fundamental problem with whole life insurance and universal life is that it's got a lot of fees. And that a lot of money goes in commission to the person who sold it. And the insurance company needs to have these surrender charges and all this other stuff combined onto it in order to pay for that commission that they paid to that person. Right? And that it's sometimes slash oftentimes sold to people who may not need it or would be yeah. better served by another product. Exactly. So, but all of those things, taking all of those into consideration if a person has a need for whole life insurance, for permanent life insurance, and they, you know, whole life is the thing that makes the most sense. Uh, and there's lots of people who have that, have a need for permanent life insurance. So if they have that need, they have a policy, and that policy is out of the surrender period where putting money in and taking money out doesn't cost them additional money, then the whole life in that, in that, very specific circumstance becomes a place where you can put money overfund it as a savings account. You might have a two, three, or four percent rate of return on it. It is guaranteed by the insurance company, which is nowhere near as good as FDIC insurance guarantee, but it's still pretty darn good. Yeah, and it can become a very useful tool as a as a as an emergency fund. The challenge is I set up a bunch of prerequisites prior to using that tool. And that's very different than what a lot of other things out there, like the infinite baking system, which is screw all those prerequisites. Let's just set up the insurance product yeah. and make that as part of your emergency fund. The problem is life insurance is horrible in the short term. The fees just destroy any possibility that you could make any money off of it whatsoever. Um, plus term insurance is cheaper, so you can buy more insurance if you need it for the insurance purposes and all sorts of other issues. And so if you're just setting it up for that purpose, it's not gonna work very well, Okay, right? Um, but if you have a client that does happen to have a need and does happen to have a life insurance policy and it's outside of the period where fees are gonna be a problem pulling money in and taking money out of it, overfunding it, part of the emergency fund can be a useful tool, right? So lots of ifs there, but it's definitely doable. Another thing that is a very useful tool, 
this technically you can as a financial coach talk about, and that is uh, tips. Hmm. So tips are treasury inflation protected securities. And so these ones have a relatively low yield. In fact, they're going to be lower than any high yield savings accounts you're going to find, but they will adjust with inflation. And so that can be a very useful tool uh, for emergency fund money where inflation is more of a concern. Those are usually emergencies that are more longer term emergencies, not things like I might lose my job next month. But that can be an, that can be a useful tool under that circumstance. There are a few others out there that are a little more esoteric. I bonds, as an example, E bonds could be useful depending on if the emergency has a deadline on it. Meaning, once this period passes, I don't have to worry about the emergency anymore. And okay, never mind. Um, oh, we're back. Just giving you a hard time. So Go ahead. And then the final thing is a Roth IRA. Again, mm. this one definitely in the territory of do not advise on this. Do not advise financial coaches. But a Roth IRA is a, an interesting emergency fund tool. And the reason why is that the Roth IRA, when money is put into it, so you put $1,000 into the Roth IRA, you that $1,000 grows to $1,500. The basis, the original $1,000, more or less, basis is a little more complicated than that, but more or less, can be pulled out, no after penalties, no taxes. Five years? After five years. Well, it's after five years of the account being open and funded. Okay. So if you put $1,000 in this year, and then you put another $1,000 in in 10 years, in year 11, you can pay, take out both $1,000. Gotcha. Because it kind of stress. However, however, there are all sorts of caveats, all sorts of challenges. There are tax implications beyond just the tax implications of pulling the money out. There is the questioning of whether or not the retirement account has been fully funded without having to worry about using up your IRA limits for this emergency fund, right? There's a whole bunch of other considerations that are beyond the scope of what financial coaches, unless they're licensed, are allowed to do and what most financial coaches deal with, that you want to be careful with that one. So let's see. So as a financial coach, you cannot tell people to take money out from their IRA. Correct. Is this correct? You can technically you can suggest to people look at your IRA. What you can't suggest to people is sell the investments in your IRA, which I don't know how you're going to recommend someone take the money out of their IRA without recommending that they sell the investments. Right. So effectively, yes, what you said was true. Technically, it's no, you can totally say, hey, take the cash out of your IRA, but I have no cash in it. Oh, then never mind. I can't talk about that. Yeah. I think she actually said, like, you can't. Tell money, or you can't tell people to take out their money, which you technically can. But again, we don't want to have the technicality be the hill we die on here and lose sight of the larger. Ah, stay away from it. Yeah, yeah, and it, because ultimately most people's investments are going to be investments. They're going to be invested in securities within their IRA, and in order to take money out of the IRA, the de facto advice is to sell those securities. So. A question that came up is, can we tell clients to research information on an IRA, just not the specifics? 
You can. I would be very, very wary about that. I cannot tell you how often I get do-it-yourselfers who are amazed at how wrong their research was. And these are really smart people because the way that the, the way that the internet is set up, you just get a bunch of information. There's very little nuance and caveats provided with that information because hell, I started talking about e-bonds and you fell asleep and (laughs) right. And so what ends up happening is people end up in a situation where they get misled by technically factually correct information, but it doesn't talk about the nuances of their situation, which makes it actually incorrect. There's a reason why your CPA will never say, yes, that is tax deductible unless they're filling out your tax forms. They will say that is potentially tax deductible. (laughs) Got it. Yeah. And even I could see with that question, you know, is it where I actually thought of it from was it potentially being a problem if you're just like, oh, you should look in, you know, here's where to find information on a Roth IRA and almost how that is presented. And of course, I think that we take a pretty conservative approach to the advice that we give, but it depends how that conversation came up, where if they're like, oh, you know, I'm looking to put money away from or, or money away towards my retirement or to invest towards mm-hmm. the future. And if you said, oh, you should look into and research a Roth IRA. And so one thing to be, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's important that we have these open and honest conversations where it's like, we're not always going to get it right, but we want to make sure that we're learning is to not point people in the direction of one specific thing, which is why it's best, you know, to even stay away from that. Well, the stock market has done this over the past, you know, 70, 80, 90, hundred years. Could it be interpreted because it could potentially be interpreted that like, Oh, this is why stocks are better than bonds that are better than, other methods of real estate or putting money in your savings account. Yeah, exactly. So funneling people into one particular type of investment could be an issue. And part of the challenge is it's a gray area. I think that article that you wrote, Josh, um, is financial Mm -hmm. coaching breaking the law, which we can put in here. It's like there hasn't been a lot of case law, if I remember correctly. Oh, but someone just posted in the group that they know a financial coach who got fined 10 grand. (laughs) Right. So it's this question of, can we be, I've heard it put like, can we be Wikipedia for, or can we be Investopedia for clients? And this idea of, can we just give factual information? Just like if a client asks like, Hey, what is a 401k? Mm -hmm. We can say, we can say, Oh, a 401k is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's a workplace plan that allows you to contribute for your retirement. It has had rapid tax. growth. You know, most right. companies got tax advantages. The tax advantages that your 401k has will depend on how your 401k is set up, which is important because <laughs> you cannot say that there are Roth and traditional options because not all 401ks have that. Yeah. And there's a ton of tax advantages that are out there that unless the 401k is specifically set up to take advantage of those tax advantages, most 401ks won't have it. Hmm. Right. And so, and the other thing that I'd be concerned about recommending to a client, you know, look into or research a Roth 
is there's a potential that it might be throwing the clients to the wolves with regard to the Roth gold, infinite banking, whole life, uh, IRA, Bitcoin edition, right? The implementation piece. Yeah. And that's also a, a big concern because, you know, there are a lot of, we'll call it predatory programs that are out there that are set up with marketing funnels that are created to look like educational pieces about X, Y, or Z. We got a question Raphael had asked. So as a financial coach, can you even advise or recommend a client to see a financial advisor? Oh, absolutely. Just like you can recommend a client to see an attorney and recommend a client to see a CPA. You don't want to say, here is the financial advisor that I have all of my clients work with. Yeah, That's actually not allowed. (laughs) But recommending, hey, you should see a financial advisor. Uh, Here are three or four that I refer clients to. You can also find them on XY Planning Network and napfa.org. Right. So pointing them in directions, providing them with multiple options, encouraging them to to work with the one that they feel most comfortable with are all really good things. Just like when a client has young children and doesn't have a will, you absolutely should encourage them to go talk to an estate planning attorney to at least get a will in place, if not other things. Yeah. And what's the reason, just quickly, I know it's in the article that you wrote, but Mm -hmm. You know, why can't you or shouldn't you send them just to a single advisor? So, and this is one of the most common misconceptions that you'll see out there. Well, I don't give investment advice because I don't manage assets. The definition of investment advice is not managing assets. It's a whole bunch of stuff, including things like what you said earlier. Well, stocks have done are a better investment historically because they've done better than these other things. That is technically investment advice according to the SEC, as well as recommendations about who to use as an investment advisor. So recommending a specific investment advisor is also considered investment advice by the SEC. And so the 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 reason why you want to provide them with options is because you're helping them in looking for someone but you're not putting yourself in a position where you're more the decider than they are. Good way of putting it. Right. And we'll link out to that article. I'm actually looking for it right now. If my Evernote goes faster. Uh, So we'll put that in the comments just so that people have easy access to that particular article that goes into what is considered investment advice, what isn't and some more details about what we can and can't talk about as financial coaches. And now one of the things that you can do though, is you can help guide a client and what questions to ask as well. Right. Cool. My nonprofit has a pretty extensive article on what questions to ask and what to look for and what does being a fiduciary mean? And when is a fiduciary not actually a fiduciary, right. And all sorts of things. So guiding clients and those things also helpful just in saying, Hey, these are the questions when you go talk to all the people you're going to talk to, Make sure you ask these questions. Make sure you're watching out for these types of answers. Ask them who their custodian is. And this would be examples of good things. And this would be examples of bad things. And this is kind of in the middle, right? Those types of things are perfectly fine because you're guiding them in helping them to ask better questions 
mm-hmm. as opposed to guiding them toward a specific answer. Got it. And I just posted both in the uh, comments there. So people have them. Well, these are great. The questions that people had. Yeah. Thanks for Sheena and Raphael. And I love a Chi saying, uh, yes, don't tell, don't advise them. What do you say? 401k is a much better place to put money in your long-term financial goals instead of putting money in Josh's shoebox. <laughs> um, I mean, I really would want to be able to say yes <laughs> to that. Yeah. He got you. He got you. My, uh, I mean, definitely it's better than putting it in my shoebox because then it's mine, right? So Yeah, I was like, that. he's accurate. There, yeah, yeah. I think he's very accurate on that statement. And uh, yeah, if you guys have any other questions. So someone just asked, ooh, can we have those lists of questions? Yes. So Rashina, uh, I think mm-hmm. we posted right at the exact same time. So the one for the questions to ask, it's under the nonprofit guide to choosing a financial advisor. Uh, so that's right there, should be in the link or should be in the comments right now. And if not, as soon as we stop this live, it'll compile all the comments that were added and you should be able to see it. Yeah. And I think that, I think, I'd have to go back and double check, but I think that that guide has all of the questions from the video and launch on this, but there might be a couple of extra questions in the video and launch. Cool. But I think that the nonprofit guide has all of them. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah. there's a reason why there is that information in Financial Coaches Network launch. <laughs> right. Because Josh is the one who teaches most of it. Yes. So, yeah, and that's something where, um, yeah, I had a thought and completely lost it. But if you are interested, that some of the information is in launch in our Knowledge Center. Um, I can post links to those as well, just so people can look into what is the Knowledge Center, what is Financial Coaches Network launch, and yeah, because we're sharing a lot of resources. So I think I'm just going to keep the resource train going down that track. So if uh, you have any additional questions that we haven't answered yet, please put them in the comments and very important, tag us in mm-hmm. those comments so that we see them and we'll go and answer them after we are off the live. And as always, thanks to everyone who joined us asking great questions. Yeah. Chi for Cheeky Chi showing up and giving us a hard time about the shoebox. I love it as always. Yeah, and we'll be on next week, Eastern. And yeah, as I say, in two weeks, we're going to have a fun one with more people on than just Josh and I. So stay tuned for that one. That's going to be fun. Have some special guests. And I think that's it. So Josh? You don't want to tell them what it's about? I mean, I could. Do you want to spill the beans? Yeah, let's do it. Fine. (laughs) We're going to have some people from the AFCPE on. We're going to have two people, Ambus and Jared. So Ambus Hunter and... Oh, gosh, Jared, I just forgot your last name. Please forgive me, who are also AFCs and talk about what the AFC accredited financial counselor designation is. Should you get it? Certifications, are they important for financial coaches or more likely why they're important for financial coaches? And so we're going to talk about those questions because what trainings and certifications do I need is a question that comes up time and time again for good reason here in the community. So we thought it'd be pretty important to have some other AFCs and experts, right, on who can talk about that. So beans have been spilled. Look forward to that one in two weeks. And until next week, everyone take care. Thanks, Josh. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. 
Uh, it also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. 